0: Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I am your host, Megan Hall, psychology grad student, spouse, mom, and advocate for change. On this podcast, I provide a space for women to share their stories. Warning: Sometimes we chat about taboo topics and drop some f bombs. Thank you for tuning in with me today, and enjoy the episode. Hey everyone. Today I'm here with Dr. Sharf. I'm going to use doctor because I'm in college and that's what we do with PhDs. (laughs) It is. It is. It's ingrained in me. And when I do it, a lot of times, like if people don't know I'm in college, they'll be like, oh, you don't have to call me doctor. I'm like, oh, you have a PhD. That's what I call all the people. (laughs) So Dr. Sharp is an internationally recognized speaker and author on the topics of addiction recovery and mental health. Mental health is a big one for me. I actually just finished a paper on the effects of education and contact on mental illness stigma, and we'll be submitting that for publication. So that's where I'm at. Her writing centers around using complementary health and contemplative practices to improve treatment outcomes. At present, she is working on a memoir about healing from trauma. Dr. Sharf is the 2019 recipient of the St. Lawrence University's
1: Ball, Ball Award. Stone, yeah.
0: Fun fact, we were talking about this before the beginning of when this episode started. Uh, that I am from the area that St. Lawrence University is located. So I got very excited because I'm like, oh, you know where that little tiny area in the middle of nowhere is.
1: There's lots (laughs) of dairies.
0: So the award was honoring her service to and advocacy for those suffering from mental illness, trauma, and addiction. Well, Dr. Sharf, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I am super excited to have this conversation because as I said, uh, mental illness and all the things are um, some of my favorite topics and uh, trigger warning for anybody listening. We are going to delve deep in some of the trauma, which could be triggering. Um, so if you're not in a space, headspace to listen to that right now, feel free to come back or I, there's like over 300 episodes that I have aired. Pick one. <laughs> check it out. There's categories on the website. You could go to mental illness or trauma or addiction or all the things, and 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 check them out. But often they have trigger warnings because trauma always does, <laughs> right? <laughs> it could be very triggering. Sometimes when I'm doing this, I'm like afterwards, I'm like I need a cool down time. Like that was very um, intense for me. As also a trauma survivor. So, yeah. Um, when you were very young, we'll start there. You went through some stuff. Um, yeah. As many of us have when we were young children. Can you tell us a little bit about that without the gory details?
1: Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I suffered some pretty uh, severe, uh, long term uh, sexual trauma from the age of 7 to 10 um i it was so extreme that i have amnesia for that period
0: mm, i got that uh, too from mine
1: yeah i have a few very faint memories that have nothing to do with mm-hmm. you know uh the the uh, abuse and the trauma um for example i have this at the very end i have this memory of making a model we made a model of I was in California we made a model of the one of the California missions Mm -hmm. out of sugar cubes and evidently I really liked gluing the sugar cubes together because I have this very very blurry memory so that's and that's it like that's kind of the whole year you know is that one memory of gluing sugar cubes together and really enjoying that
0: it's very Um, weird how our brains are just like here's this random memory that makes absolutely no sense in this context, but you're welcome. <laughs> well, actually to
1: me, it does because I must have, re- I love school. I, I yeah, you know, I have too. a PhD, you know, the people, we're people who like school. Yeah. And um, so it was, it was, a tr- I, re- I remember the context of it. It was a treat. And so I must have, you know, finished my work earlier, whatever and so I got to work on this model and I must have been so delighted with that it yeah. was such a, a a gift that it broke through mm. that you know everything is just too difficult to remember yeah. um and so I I see it in those terms that it was it was just so delightful but anyway um but yeah, so I, I had that I had that kind of abuse. And, you know, I'm a little bit older, I'll be 50 this year. And so this is back before, you know, don't touch a person where your bathing suit covers. And yeah. I didn't have language at at Me seven years old, I didn't have language to say to someone, hey, this is what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even if I had wanted to disclose, which I don't think I would have, but even if I had wanted to disclose, I did not have the language to do that. And so, um, you know, people who have the kind of abuse that, that I've endured usually end up either overdoses or suicides.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We don't make it. No. And yet because of the kinds of uh, support I've been able to get over the years, um, I've turned into an internationally recognized mental health and addiction researcher. And I really work at the intersection of addiction and trauma, you yeah. know, and because of that experience, it, it, motivated me. And the, the motivation came when I was, I've been sober for next month will be 24 years.
0: Congratulations.
1: Thanks. So I was sober, I don't know, six, seven, eight years. And I was in, Uh, The west. I was on the west side of of Los Angeles, and I was in 12-step meetings, and my trauma when I got sober really got worse Mm. because I didn't have the alcohol to tamp down Mm. my feelings. And the veterans were, I was, the meeting I used to go to on Friday nights was very near the VA hospital, and the veterans were coming back from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, Mm. and they weren't getting sober. A couple of them killed themselves, and so I was very, very depressed. I was mildly suicidal. I really, you know, couldn't manage. Um, and this one veteran who I really liked killed himself. He was 23 years old. All he wanted to do with his life was be a marine. He had been wounded in uh, in combat. He was medically discharged. And his trauma was just overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And uh, he killed himself and he left behind a a wife and an infant child. And I thought, you know, I'm miserable. I'm sober, but I'm miserable. These people are not getting sober. There has to be better treatment. Mm -hmm. There have to be better resources available. I happened to be in grad school at the time. I changed everything that I was doing. And I started to research the intersection of addiction and trauma to look at what resources are actually available. And there are much better resources than we knew of at the time. And um, I specifically look at complementary therapies and I try them all out on myself because I've got, you know, all the problems, you know, <laughs> stemming from that early abuse. And uh, we found out what works and what doesn't. Now, just because it doesn't work for me doesn't mean that it doesn't work. right? But um, you know, it's that's a good starting place, and I specifically look at therapies that uh, don't really have any side effects. You know, so medications and and certain and certain other kinds of therapies are very triggering. Whereas you know, one of the things that I like, for example, is acupuncture. Well, you lay on a table, and a person sticks needles into you. You know, and you show up or you don't show up, but that's all you have to do. Or music playing, music and singing has a very good effect. So I look at these things. So what happens? You know, what you don't sing very well. Well, that your brain doesn't care, right? You know. So that's really what I look at, and we found some tremendous resources over the last twenty years.
0: I can relate to your story um, because I also was abused as a child, um, sexually abused as a child. Uh, I so when it came out. Uh, and I uh, can remember vividly the phone call and my mom asking my sister and I if, you know, our uncle had ever done anything to us. And my sister automatically broke out in tears, and so we knew she knew something. And I was like, I don't know, I don't remember anything. I I just know I hated him like forever, as far back as I can remember. But I don't remember anything, and so I never got treatment you know, and as you know, unresolved trauma, it's still there. You just can't access it. Like, you know, something happened. You just don't know what. And I actually didn't really know um, until I started EMDR therapy right before the, right before COVID hit. And then we had to stop because everything went virtual and I just don't do well virtually with EMDR. Um, One little memory I had, one of him We started with that and EMDR, whoo, I was, I was that, holy shit. Uh, (laughs) It was like, oh, I didn't know that was a thing, you know, and it took over 20 years for me to even know like, oh, something did happen. I always thought something happened, but oh, something really did happen. And so it's wild how trauma works.
1: Yeah, it's wild how trauma works. And, and, And so here, you know, let's talk a bit you know, maybe about memory. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I've never tried to recover any memory. I don't feel like it serves me any purpose. Yeah. Um, The person who uh, abused me is dead, has been for over 25, 26 years now. So, you know, that's not a, you know, there's not going to be any interaction. There's not going to be any quote unquote closures, none of that. So let's talk about, let's talk about memory with regard to trauma, because you were, you were pointing at your head when you were talking about uh, memories. And memory isn't really where trauma is based. This is what we're learning. So, so talk therapies, which I did for over 20 years with almost no result, nothing, tens of thousands of dollars in, in talk therapy and didn't do anything. And you're going to hear that over and over and over and over from people who have trauma, Mm -hmm. diagnosable PTSD. Right. And what we've learned, if you read The Body Keeps the Score, Mm -hmm. if you read What Happened to You, you know, if you read some of the seminal works on trauma, what you're going to find is that the trauma specialists say, no, 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 trauma is in the body. Mm Mm-hmm which is why I don't really care what the memories are. Right. It doesn't make any difference. What matters to me is to reduce the trauma symptoms. I want outcomes for myself and for anyone I work with. I'm, I'm concerned with outcomes. So are you plagued by hypervigilance? Are you unable to be in an intimate relationship? Do you have problems with trust? Do you have flashbacks? Do you have body memories? Whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. I want a reduction of symptoms so mm-hmm. that you can be present in your life because trauma essentially is being hooked in the past. You're not present because the past keeps intruding. Mm. So, for example, I would very often have this sensation in the grocery store, uh, uh, putting face cream on, you know, of someone breathing on my neck. Oh, Right. And it sort of it was almost I mean, it wasn't really a memory so much as it it, it had morphed into something almost like in the movie Alien, where the, at the where the uh, alien comes out and is like, yeah, Sigourney Weaver. It was almost like that. So it wasn't. But that was that was the trauma response for whatever, mm. you know, a, and so I couldn't be in the grocery store putting on the face cream whatever because i was hooked into this past experience and what healing is for trauma is to get us in unhooked so mm-hmm. that past doesn't intrude so that we can be present in in the now in this experience and interact with the people that were we can be here right be, and interact with the people here so that's what that's what we're looking for And so memory now EMDR, which does work with memories, it has is its own thing. And it can be very, very effective. But that's what we're looking to do is to clear this from the body. And that's usually using some sort of somatic, which EMDR, the eye movement is a somatic and the vibrating experience, too. Some people use them, some people don't, Yeah. but yes. So these are forms of somatic experiencing and that really is what helps people with trauma and with trauma recovery. We're finding, you know, um, over and over, I love um, the body keeps the score. Of course, that's, you know, probably the, the foundational work for, for trauma recovery. And it goes along with, you know, when I was back in grad school, it goes along with the idea um from traditional healing shamans of shaking medicine. So when you observe, let's say a bird that was attacked by a predator, but got away, the bird will go to a safe place under a bush or in a rock outcropping or whatever. It will puff up its feathers and it will tremble. It will shake. And that moves the trauma out of the body so that it doesn't get stored. And that's what somatic experiencing is about. And there are a whole bunch of different kinds. There are trauma release exercises called TRE. There is something called radical aliveness, which is, you know, um, a neo-Reichian form of therapy that, but it, you know, you scream and you hit a block, you know, a, a styrofoam block and, and, you know, all sorts of things because you want to move those emotions. And when I started doing somatic experiences, all of a sudden, I mean, I just had trim, everything just changed. Whereas traditional psychotherapy did not yeah. help me.
0: No, see, so talk therapy helps me become aware. Right. Okay. Um, so I started after a suicide attempt in 2013. I'd never gotten help before that. I never sought it. My parents, despite all the trauma that, I mean, because they divorced when I was 13, like all this stuff, like they were aware that I could have, or I was, I had been through. Nobody was like, maybe we should get her help. Even despite like suicide attempts, uh, severe depression and come to find out I have bipolar disorder um, <laughs> with the hypomania um, developed when I was a teenager. Uh, so, um, I went through this really bad time in my early twenties where I was drinking heavily and, you know, to deal with the things going on in just going on. Like I I just, you know, you're, you're just like, I don't, I have all this emotion and I don't know how to deal with it anyways. Long story short. I'd never gotten help until my spouse after my suicide or or during it, I should say, because he came in and he was like, you need help. Like, please go get help. Like, I want you to stay with me. Please, please go get help. And I went and and it helped me become aware, but it didn't, when I came, when I moved to Connecticut and I saw my, my therapist for the first time, I'm talking to her about like all these years I've been in therapy and she goes, you have trauma. Like, talking about your trauma is just not really going to do a whole lot for you. Exactly.
1: It doesn't do a thing.
0: And that's when I got introduced to EMDR therapy.
1: So here's, here's, why that, here's why talking about it doesn't work is because the vast majority of trauma survivors can tell you, barring amnesia, can tell you what the experience was. But we're completely divorced from the emotion of that experience. Mm -hmm. And so what is talking about it going to do? You know, I would tell the therapist, oh, this, 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 you know, because I'd tell what I remembered. Right. I remember I remember the first experience. And then I remember when it ended. And everything in the middle is just missing. Yeah. And so the therapist would cry. I mean, every therapist I had would cry. Every sponsor too. I had yeah. would cry. I fired them. I'm like, you cry on your own time. Like, I'm like, no. So, well, when you're dealing with that level of dissociation, cause that's dissociation. Yeah. When you're li- dealing with that dissociation, talking about it doesn't yeah. move it. It doesn't move it. And so what can, what can you do? You know, I right. got so, I, you know, like I said, I had 20 years of talk therapy that did nothing for me and I got so fed up essentially that I, I moved out to the country in, to a rural area. I built myself a, a writer's retreat because I'm essentially, I, I do addiction research, but in my heart, I'm a writer, you know, <laughs> and so I write books and, um, I was like, I'm not going to get married and I'm just going to live the best life I can. And by limiting my social interaction, then I limited my inner, especially with men. Then I, I limited the effects of the trauma response. Mm. Shortly thereafter, I'm, I, I, meet someone who says why don't you try this somatic experiencing why don't you try radical aliveness which is what i've been doing and uh, oh my god my life changed mm-hmm. i mean it changed so much i i literally lost 75 pounds wow doing nothing nothing different because i was able to move enough of that emotion through that i didn't need to be 325 pounds anymore I just didn't need it. Right. Because that was my safety mechanism, right? If I, I wanted to become, you know, if you'd asked me, but I wanted to become so large that just, you just couldn't move me. I would be an immovable mass. And therefore you couldn't do something to me that I didn't want you to do. Yeah. Right. Because if you can't move 500, 800, what, you know, you just can't move it. Right. That's That's the way my mind worked, you know, and then once those old experiences passed through, I was like, oh, I don't need this weight anymore. And it just fell off. I didn't do a special diet. I didn't do more exercise. I didn't do anything. It just fell off. And then truth was able to get through, right? Because people would tell me all the time, they're like, you know, large people get assaulted all the time. There are men who like large women, who fetishize large, like all sorts of things. And I was like, no, 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 better to be fat, because I had heard my father one day say, I don't want to fat women. Oh, good yeah. information. That's good information. Which wasn't true because he he slept with with heavy set women all the time. But that's what I heard as a you know eight or nine year old. Oh, he doesn't like fat women. That's uh, well, then I should be fat, right? And you know, then one day a friend of mine, a a, a guy that I worked with, he 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 said to, he said to me. I said, you know, it's better to be fat because, you know, then men won't pay attention to you. And he was like, he just looked at me and he's like, that's not true. This guy's a legit, you know, like legit rock star, like stage performing musician with a major band who only dates, you know, young and beautiful, right? That's what, that's yeah. his deal. And so I thought for sure he would validate me and say, absolutely. Old and heavy is, is terrible. Like you should be that because men won't be, was like, that's not true. And for whatever reason, That day, because I'd been doing the somatic experiencing, that day it hit me, and I was like, oh, that's not true. He's absolutely right, and the weight fell off, and I've kept it off for the 75 pounds. I've kept it off for four years. Wow. More than four years.
0: That is amazing, and I can relate to the disassociation. Like You talk to people about this, right? You share your story and the facial expressions of them, like the horror in their face. And you're just like, what? Like, because you're just yeah. like, I'm so disassociated with the trauma that to me, it just seems normal. It just seems like it's part of life. It's just like, I don't, I don't well, know. Well, because I do, I I'm feel not it.
1: feeling it. That's yes. it. I'm not feeling it. You're feeling it because you have, you, whoever the person I'm talking to is, you have that ability to connect to your emotions. I don't. In fact, I'll go so far as if a therapist really pushes me, I won't, I'll dissociate. I mean, I had one therapist, God bless her. You know, I worked with her for 10 years and boy, did she try. And she said to me at one point, she's like, it's very frustrating because I can tell you're dissociated in the session. I won't remember the session. Oh, I'll be talking, talking, talking. I'm gone. I'm up here floating in the ethers. What looking down on the I'm gone, you know, yeah. or I'll, something will come up like, you know, and I just blank it out, gone. Every nothing. therapist
0: has said to me, I can't believe that you have been through all of this and you're still functioning. They say the like, same
1: thing to me. But, but not, see, I
0: haven't always highly functioned. <laughs>
1: no, but see, this is this is a dysfunction and this is why I'm not a psychologist. This, well, this is, is dis-
0: why I'm not going to be a therapist.
1: <laughs> this, is, this is a dysfunction of the way we train therapists. Because every time a therapist, you know, says to me, I don't know how you're still functioning. I'm like, well, clearly you're not very capable of helping me through. Because yeah. if you can't understand how I function, then how can you help me
0: right.
1: to work on the ways in which I'm highly dysfunctional. I function in the world because I have these maladaptive traits that keep me from having emotions, that keep me from being present. I was having body memories, and I won't won't say what they were, but I was having body memories 30 to 40 times in succession. I can't get out of bed when that happens. Yeah. And you're going to say, well, I don't know how you function. I'm sorry. I'm paying you to be here. Like, you know, a lot of money to be here and you don't know how I function. That's why I really encourage people to not go to traditional talk therapy, but to seek out therapists. And I know it's hard because the resources are not there. Mm -hmm. But to seek out people who are specifically trained in trauma, because it will be a very, very different kind of therapeutic. Also, while I really like somatics, I also like a lot of other kinds of complementary therapies. By and large, they're not covered by insurance. Yeah. And so you're going to pay. And you're going to pay a lot. because. The, the people who are practitioners of these practices, while I don't, you know, very few of them are getting rich, they also like to eat and have a home, right. you know, and that means that their hourly rate, their session rate has to be high because they're not going to be subsidized by insurance. The thing that has helped me the most, I get, I, I'm so grateful to my practitioner because she gives me a, a discounted rate. But I've spent, I mean, boatloads of money and the, the, the going rate is, you know, starts at 135 and goes up from there.
0: Yeah. Um, in my research, which shouldn't be surprising to anyone, anyone is access is one of the barriers to getting help with mental health because people, some people don't have the resources, especially people who have been through trauma because that can contribute to addiction which can also contribute to a lower socioeconomic status, mental health disorders can contribute. Cause you know, especially bipolar disorder being one is we're not, I shouldn't say we typically people with bipolar disorder aren't consistently keeping jobs because you're calling off because you're depressed or you're calling off because you're just like impu- being impulsive. And you're just like, I'm going to go do this thing instead. And so you're not keeping um, steady employment and so lower socioeconomic status. So it can be so it, yes, they need absolutely. Practitioners need to eat. They have insurance, they have bills, they have all these things they need to pay. So it is no way, shape or form their fault that it's so pricey, but it is sad that like not everybody is capable of accessing these things that are so helpful.
1: Well, the problem, the problem is, is that we, is our insurance system. Yes. Our insur- so our medical system is for-profit, mm-hmm. which is not true in most of the world. So you've got an insurance system that is designed to exclude, right? It doesn't matter what you have. The, the insurance, their first job is to say no. And mm-hmm. any physician, take it out of the realm of mental health. Any physician will tell you that they spend a disproportionate and infuriating amount of time fighting with insurance companies for uh, procedures, tests, medications, and so forth that they absolutely believe their patients need in the realm mm-hmm. of addiction. Because as you said, addiction and trauma, often not exclusively, but frequently go together. Um, in addiction, what we're seeing, because I really came up from addiction first and then crossed over to trauma right. when I realized that, you know, the the connection there. And, you know, I've worked with thousands of uh, people with addiction and you're going to find, you know, that they almost all have some sort of traumatic experience.
0: Mm-hmm. Do
1: they have PTSD? Often not. Because right. having a traumatic experience does not necessarily correlate to developing trauma. Exactly. But, you know, I've only ever spoken to in all of the thousands of people that I've worked with, one person who truly, truly says, I don't know how I developed addiction. He's like, I don't know how I became an alcoholic. He's like, I had wonderful family you know very good upbringing no real problems no history of addiction no traumatic experiences and i'm an alcoholic and he's like i i don't really know how that happened you know i i can literally count that on one finger one person yeah. who says that to me you know and are are there others you know who have that same tale i'm sure there are but that's not the majority of people you know because why do we why do we drink you know i drink because It works for me to not feel my feelings. And I have a lot of feelings I don't want to feel. Yeah. You know, and that's basically, you know, why, you know, and other people who, you know, are like, oh, I felt that I felt the alcohol was making me a little drunk. And I, I, you know, I'm like, and they stopped drinking. I'm like, what's wrong with you? You know, right. I, right. Good. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, you know, like, oh, I got a little sick and I'm like, well, you should just keep drinking through that and you won't notice the next time, you know, you just like I threw up. That was terrible. I'm like, well, just it, that just means you can drink more. You know, so there's a there's that alcoholic mindset. Right. But when we look at alcoholic treatment, you know, people think that 28 to 30 days is standard. Right. Right. That's not standard anymore. Now, we have known for almost 50, right around 50 years, that a long-term, and by that I mean 90 to 120 days, stint in residential treatment followed up with a full year of supported, supportive services is optimal for recovery, so I wrote a book in uh, 2012 with Richard Tate called Ending Addiction for Good, and we talked in that book about a treatment model that we used in a, in a treatment facility that had a 90% success rate. And people were like, you can't have a 90% success You're Like, how is it? At, at one year, 90% of the people who had gone through the program is actually higher than that, but 90% of the people who had gone through the program were still sober, Well, why did we have such a success rate? Because we treated to outcomes. It wasn't an insurance-based company. People paid to be there. And so they could afford to stay for the optimal level of care. And lo and behold, when you keep people for a reasonable amount of time, they get sober and they stay sober. So you have people who wanted to be there. We're willing to stay 90 to 120 days and then we're followed up with supportive outpatient services. Surprise, surprise, they're still sober. Mm -hmm. Now, insurance companies, even though more than 107,000 people died from overdoses last year. Wow. We are at the height of, of an overdose crisis that is not pulling back insurance companies, remember their job is to make money. Their job is not to help you. Their job is to make money and to minimize your care in order to do that. They are pulling people out of residential treatment. Now we're looking at eight to 10 days. Essentially you're getting the required medical detox because medical detox is required in almost every state. I believe in every state, but, um, So they give you that and then they pull you out and they say, go to outpatient. So now in outpatient, the person may or may not be able to afford to live in sober living. They may be at home. They may be in sober living. What they want to do, they being insurance, want to do is they want you to, quote unquote, fail out. You have to fail out of of treatment. Well, that. Very often means a relapse. Once you've been detoxed, that is the most dangerous time Mm -hmm. to relapse because now your brain tells you you still have the same tolerance, you still need the same dose, but you don't. Your body isn't accustomed to that. Add fentanyl into the mix.
0: Oh, shit. Yeah.
1: And they die. Well, that's a wonderful plan for insurance because if you're dead, they don't have to pay for you anymore. Yep. I was in Slovenia, I don't know, five years ago or something. I can't remember exactly. And uh, I was speaking at it. I was there for a conference, but I knew some people who who ran an addiction treatment center and they asked me to come speak at their addiction treatment center. First of all, I was impressed because most of the people spoke English in treatment. These are the, the, the quote unquote unemployable addicts, all of that. No, no, they all spoke multiple languages. Most, they did translate, but most of them spoke English. And there was a woman in the front row who was paying a lot of attention. And she asked me about how long the care is in the United States. And, and at that time, you know, it was a little bit longer. It was more like 12 to 17 days was what people were getting. and About two weeks. And she was horrified. Yeah, she, she said, well, how, I said, well, how long do you, do you stay here? And she looked at me like I had two heads. And she said, until the doctors and I agree that um, I'm ready to, to, to go. Oh, treating to outcomes. What a shocker. Right. What a shocker. And imagine, so you can get away with this in mental health because people with addiction, unfortunately behave badly. And they do things that hurt other people, right? If you mm-hmm. get between me and my and my alcohol, I'm going to push you out of the way. I'm going to steal from you. If I don't have money, I'm going to steal from you. If you invite me to your wedding, it's not fair of you to say don't show up drunk. I'm yeah. going to do the best I can. But if I'm going to show up, I need to drink. When I'm drinking, I need to drink. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to show up or not show up. I'm going to be at some level of intoxication. And I may or may not make an ass of myself at your event. Yeah, not because I don't love you, but because that's the best I can do when I'm drinking. So we can we we societally discriminate against, you know, people with addiction because they behave, they're, they're bad people, they behave badly. Imagine though, if you take it out of that context and we had cancer and you received, well, you get 10 days of cancer treatment and then, you know, let's see what happens over the next um, eight weeks. And if your cancer gets worse, well, then we'll discuss, we'll discuss the possibility of you getting 10 more days of cancer treatment.
0: People would be Ameri- terrified.
1: Americans would burn the that that, that burn the country down. Yeah. We wouldn't do but it's because cancer patients don't one of the symptoms of their disease isn't that they behave badly.
0: Yeah.
1: And so we've gotten ourselves into this situation where, you know, insurance companies can
0: mm-hmm
1: get away with these practices. And so they do.
0: Well, part of that too is, so I'm a social psychology researcher and my, my, I shouldn't say favorite, but my focus right now is stigma and addiction is highly stigmatized, which means society they're not fighting for people with addiction because it's so stigmatized. They're not thinking of that. They're judging people with addiction. Right,
1: but my, my point, uh, you're correct. But my point is where does stigma come from? Stigma, in my opinion- at least partially comes from this misunderstanding
0: no exactly of
1: what addiction is is that mm-hmm. people with addiction this is why i say that we can get away with it in in this country to not treat people with addiction because part of the disorder one of the symptoms is this quote unquote bad behavior this right. antisocial behavior this harmful behavior people with active addiction Hurt the people who mm-hmm. love them and take advantage of them, not because they want to, but because they ca- have to. They, yeah. You know, if you st- if you stand in the way of me and my drink when I'm drinking, I am going to shove you. I'm going to say, get out of the way, get out of the way, get out of the way. And if you stay in my way, I will shove you out of my way. It's not because I'm antisocial. It's because I have to have that drink. Mm -hmm. And you're not listening to me. That's so when we we have to understand stigma doesn't isn't doesn't come out of nowhere. Oh, no, I know. And that and that well, but I'm saying this for the people who are listening. I'm saying this for the people who are listening. Stigma doesn't come out of nowhere. And so we have to understand where the stigma comes from so we can root it out. Exactly. Until we root it out, then there's no hope for people with addiction because, it's like homelessness, right? Yeah. You see someone who's homeless and they might smell bad. They might be dirty. They might be ill, including, you know, all the way, all physical or mental illness, right? Talking to themselves. They might become violent. A friend of mine who's been working with schizophrenics, you know, he he, he said to me the other day, he said, they're rarely, the, the voices that are telling them to do things are rarely telling them to do nice things. Right. The voices are rarely telling them, oh, go up and hug your mom because she made your favorite dessert. No, it's they're telling them things sometimes like scoop their eyes out with a spoon so that they can't s- track you. Yeah. Right. So you see that it's hard as any human being to look beyond all of that that we have been told is bad and say ooh what's going on here and this person I mean this is a human rights issue this person as a human being deserves quality and effective treatment yeah it is hard to do it is hard to do and that's what we have to acknowledge is that it's not just the special, you know, human rights workers and, and, and homeless advocates and mental health advocates like you and I. This, is, this has to be a social call to say, oh, these difficult symptoms are symptoms of a disease or a disorder that does not diminish an individual's humanity,
0: No, exactly. And I, and I appreciate that. You said people don't have enough knowledge because one of the ways we combat stigma is education. Like that's very important for people to not only be aware, but understand. So I, when you're talking about addiction and and you're, you know, you're like, if you stand in my way, I'm pushing you. I was in a relationship, a three-year relationship with somebody who was addicted to drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a child together and it was a, it became a very violent relationship. So it was very traumatic for me, uh, already on top of trauma. Now, now understanding, right? I didn't have understanding then. I, I did not have the understanding. I had the stigma, like I stigmatized beliefs and all these things I was very judgmental. Now I can understand where it came from, right? He had a lot of trauma as a kid, a lot of trauma. I don't even, I, I, it's wild. Like I, I have a hard time even looking at his mom. Cause I'm like, how, how did you allow this to happen to your child? But anyways, that's, she was also traumatized. It's, it's a whole thing. I'm not going to tell their story. It's not mine to tell. I now have empathy and could understand what happened because I I took the time to learn and understand I had to get out of the relationship because well that's that's what I'm thinking
1: as you're telling this story is there's there's a a marked difference between empathy Mm -hmm. and compassion. That's one that's one set of things and then there's also this is inappropriate behavior and I'm and I'm going to protect myself there are boundaries and boundaries are internal.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I heard someone uh, who uh, works in mental health the other day that I really liked talking about boundaries. And I think this is important when we talk about stigma is I am not advocating for boundarylessness. Yeah. And this person with regard to boundaries said, my boundaries are mine. They are my actions. You cannot cross my boundaries anything else that's not my action as a request mhm so i don't engage in conversation with people who are high i just don't yeah someone calls me up high and i'm like i'm so glad you called you can call me back when you're sober click I fully understand. I will follow up later and, you know, and say, hey, how you doing? You know, do you want treatment? Are you how are you feeling? You know, I'll absolutely. But I'm not going to put my I don't have to put myself in a position to be abused or mistreated. Right. And so there's there's and, and I think that's a very important distinction for people to make. You know, to understand who the addict is, you know, I I had a a cousin, I have a cousin, who uh, wanted her daughter at her wedding, and her daughter was, I don't know, 27 or 28, very, very bad heroin addict, and her mother knew she was going to show up to the wedding high, like that was what was going to happen, and everybody knew, and the, the the young woman, you know, she showed up and she was on her best behavior. She was high, but she was on her best behavior. Anyway, during the ceremony, she went on the nod. What's the nod? The nod is when you uh, uh, fall asleep or pass out.
0: Oh, okay, okay.
1: Right, because narcotics, right, are going to okay. put you to sleep. So she, uh, during the ceremony, she went on the nod and sort of leaned forward. You know how when you fall asleep sitting up, you might sort of lean forward, fall forward. And one of her breasts fell out of her dress. Oh, my. During the middle of the ceremony, boob is unfolded because she's sitting in the front row, right? Boob is on full display. So someone, one of the relatives who was, and I, everyone was sort of, you know, horrified. But one of the relatives who was sitting next to her pushed her back and popped her boob back in her dress. And they went on with the ceremony. To me, that is really the epitome of compassion. Mm. This poor woman would have been so traumatized if she hadn't been able to be at her mother's wedding. The mother would have been traumatized if the daughter hadn't been able to be there. And instead of making a big deal about the fact that she was doing the best she could, she wasn't as high as she could. She wasn't in the bathroom shooting dope. She was trying to show up in the best way she could. You know, the other family member was like, sit back, boob in, continue. Yeah. (laughs) And we were like, oh, what a great thing. Yeah. And when she died, when the young woman died a few years later, no one had any guilt about the fact that she didn't get to be at her mother's wedding, including her mother. So there's this difference between boundaries and compassion. Right. I, you know, if you, if you start screaming at me, I walk away.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Those are boundaries and we can have those boundaries with compassion. I agree. It is Ah. very hard. We also have to know our shortcomings. It is very hard for me. Just, just who I am when someone has very bad teeth. It is a deal. Like I, that is my, like, and I don't know why. I just, it's a, it is so hard for me when someone has bad teeth. And so I don't take that out on them. There's a million reasons why people have bad teeth. You know, like they're British. (laughs) 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 who don't have the kind of orthodonture, right. And don't have the access to the, you know, or, or, or whatever, right. Or they're, or they're poor, or they, you know, what my, actually my grandmother had a full, uh, had a full set of, uh, of, uh, implants because she she was very wealthy, but she'd had a bad dentist and her teeth had been ruined and had to all be taken out. And she had full, a full set of implants right? Well, she didn't look like she had bad teeth, right? But there's a lot of reasons why people have bad teeth that have nothing to do with them. So I have to know my own prejudices. Mm-hmm. I have, which is, I don't, I, I don't generally work with the homeless, homeless population because it, my prejudices are very hard for me to fight against. I do better in research. So that's what I do. Yeah. And then I, but day to day, I can't, I can't. So it's important to know that about ourselves as well, to understand Mm -hmm. the difference between stigma and boundaries and how they play off of each other. And then our own acknowledging our own prejudices, our own shortcomings, so that we don't further stigmatize people unwittingly um, by our by our actions.
0: Absolutely. And I could go on. (laughs) And on with you, but our time has unfortunately come to an end. As we wrap up the podcast today, Dr. Sharf, what would you like to leave the Inspired Women audience with?
1: I want you to know that if you have addiction or trauma or other mental health issues, that there is recovery. Mm -hmm. There is good treatment out there, but you're going to have to look for it. And I know given some of the conditions that we have, that is hard. Mm-hmm. But I don't want you to waste, I wasted 20 years looking for therapies, we know what they are now. And the problem is, is they're going to be expensive, but I'm going to encourage you if there's any way at all for you to prioritize that. And I, I, I get that financially, that's not realistic for, for everyone. But if there's any way at all for you to prioritize getting mental health care, it will improve all the other aspects of your life. And so look for, especially for trauma, look for somatics and other complementary therapies. It's all available on my website and the websites of many others. There are people out there who want to help you and you can really have a very, very different life and unhook from those things um, in your past that are keeping you limited.
0: Well, Dr. Sharp, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today.
1: Thank you for having me.